The reading today is from John chapter 18, verses 28, through to chapter 19, verse 16. Please be upstanding for the reading. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. But now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is Aramaic. 
is Gabata. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. How are you doing, friends? Three of us are good, the rest of us questionable. It's getting hotter, that might have something to do with it. It's hot outside, isn't it? It's happening, yeah. Yep, I won't sweat today, I promise. Um, hey, that was really seamless from Eden. I didn't realize, I was sort of like blazed out um, when she first started reading, and then I was like, oh, that's not the passage I'm preaching from today. Okay, I might need to come up with another sermon. And then she changed, and oh my gosh, so can we just honor Eden for that wonderful reading? It was really helpful. Thank you, Eden. Um, when I was in the UK, I, was, um, I studied the life of a man named Blaise Pascal. He's a French mathematician and philosopher. And he, um, he lived in 1623 to 1664, I think. I've probably butchered those numbers, but 17th century guy. Quite a smart guy. His dad was a tax collector uh, in Paris for the French government. And to help his dad calculate the amount of money that he needed to collect on his dad's behalf, he invented a tool, which actually a lot of historians think was the first form of the calculator, at 19 years old. I haven't done that, you know, didn't do that by the age of 19. Quite a smart man. Uh, he's actually credited with creating what you call the hydraulic press. Um, he also uh, put together a number of theories which we use to calculate probabilities in life. Um, and he's actually noted to have done two really incredible things. The first person to create the syringe and, purportedly, the first person to map out the bus route for Paris. <laughs> Blaise Pascal, wonderful man, very smart. But Blaise Pascal, the reason I studied him is because he had this wonderful argument for God's existence. He would say that on the one hand, we can come to know God through reason, and reason resonates with the truth of God that we can think God's thoughts after him, that we can come to know something of God using our brains, that in other words, in popular terms, you don't need to check your door, your brain out at the door of this thing we call Christianity. You can be a thinking, wise, smart Christian. You don't have to be, but it's available to you. You don't have to check your brain out at the door. But he said that there's something that the heart comes to know about God which the brain can't. And he famously said that the heart has its reasons which reason doesn't know. That in other words, there's two ways to come to know God. With our minds, reasonably and rationally, and with our hearts, experientially, effectively, relationally, intimately. And we, you, you think about this man, quite a smart man, a philosopher, a mathematician. He could say very clearly and confidently, I know God. But then he had this theory which suggested that we need to encounter something of God experientially in a way that actually exceeds what our minds can comprehend. And we know this is true about him because when he died in 1663, 62, sorry, there it is, sewed into the, um, the stitching in his jacket was something called the memoriam. And the memoriam was this little sort of biography of his encounter with Jesus 
that happened on November 10th, 1653, when he was 30 years old. And I just want to read it for you. And as I read it to you, I want you to picture this. You've got a philosopher, a mathematician, someone who says with, with our minds, yes, we can come to know about God. And then you read his encounter with the living, ruling, reigning Jesus. And you think, man, though, that they seem very different and both so necessary. Let me read you these words. It'll be on the screen behind me. It just said this. He kept this in his jacket pocket ever since this happened. Written it down. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life, that they know you and the one true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, never let me ever be separated from him. Fire. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, never let me be separated from you. You are the God, not of the philosophers, but only the one found in the Gospels. This is how he came to faith. He was staring at a picture of Jesus, and God met him, transformed his life. This God who he said, yeah, I can know him with my mind, but goodness me, what would it mean to encounter him? And as a church, we've been walking through this series called Encountering Jesus, and we're sort of putting forward this argument that, yes, we can know about God, but we need to know God relationally. You can have facts about Jesus, but actually you need to step into a relationship with Jesus. You can be educated theologically, but unless you have an experience or an encounter with the risen ruling king, it's all for nothing. Because the point of everything we can come to know about God serves the larger task of what? Relationship with him walking with him, being with him. That's the whole point. The whole point of this book, though it reveals things about him, it's actually to get us to journey further in intimacy and relationship with him. That's the story. That's why the church exists. So we might spur one another on in our continually encountering of Jesus. That's the point. The point of this whole thing we call Christianity is not just another worldview to contemplate with our minds. It's not just another philosophy to think with our heads. It's to meet with Jesus, to encounter Jesus. And as we do that, we're walking through the Gospels and we're looking at the lives of particular individuals. And today we come to a man named Pilate. And Pilate's the guy that we're calling the insecure leader. It'll become clear as to why he's an insecure leader as we go along. Um, but one of the things we've discovered as we've walked through this series is that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he doesn't change. But depending on your attitude and your posture, he meets us in very different ways, right? Like, have you ever thought about that? You might have a friend, you might have a colleague, you might have a, someone in your world who's just so bitter towards Christianity, so callous, so disinterested in Christianity, but you yourself, a follower of Jesus, are like, man, I love Jesus. Same person that you're talking about, very different posture. And the way that God, through Jesus, meets people in the Gospels, 
Same God, same Jesus, but based on the posture of those who come to meet him, they get a very different encounter. And we see that today as Pilate sees Jesus face to face and does something other than what you'd expect him to do. We're calling this the insecure leader. It comes from John 18 to 19. Don't have all the time in the world uh, to get through everything in this text. And again, because Eden read it, you sort of get this picture that it's a big story. And so two hours later, we might be sitting down for dumplings. Um, But here's here's what John's doing. John's a bit of a master writer as he writes his gospel. There's all these symbols that he uses. There's all these ways that he charts the historical nature of Jesus' life, but threads into the narrative of Jesus' story this beautiful symbolism about who Jesus is, why he's the one that we hope for, and how he can change our lives for good and for God. That's what John is doing. And in this particular passage, what he's doing is he's narrating an encounter between uh, a Roman governor... Pilate and the Jewish elite, or in other words, the height of religious fanaticism in the first century and the Jewish empire, you wouldn't call it an empire, but the Jewish religion, and then on the other hand, the height of the Roman empire, so that the air is thick, tension is real, you can cut it like a knife, and the question is, what happens next? John, in his literary genius, he sort of narrates this story in this way that's like this bit of crescendo. And we know this to be the case because every few verses, Pilate starts inside and then he goes outside. And then he goes back inside and then he goes back outside. There's seven scenes where he moves between one and the other, four outside and three inside. And as Pilate goes back and forth between the Jewish elite and the safety of his temple, here's what's going on. He's getting more and more certain of Jesus' innocence and the crowd is getting more and more agitated that Pilate's going to let him go. Thick. Electric. What's going to happen next? I won't read those verses to you, but just go through from verses 29 of chapter 18 to verse 13, and it's this inside, outside, the innocence of Jesus versus the guilty claim of the Jewish elite against Jesus. Really, this is where, you know how people say things like you've got to speak truth to power? This is really the first moment that we've got narrated where this is really happening. The truth of Jesus versus the power of Rome and the Jewish elite and all of it culminating. And it's this anxious moment and it gets to this point where finally it says around the end of the 18th chapter, Pilate resorted not to kill Jesus, but then the Jewish elite, next chapter say, claim that he won't be a friend of Caesar. And this creates this moment where, where actually what Pilate had resorted to do literally verses earlier is like, ah, oh, stuff it, I'll just crucify him. And here's the question, why? Why? When you've got this beautiful passage crescendoing up so that Pilate's so sure of Jesus' innocence, now culminating in yet, okay, stuff it, let's just crucify the guy. How did this happen? To understand that, let me just unpack friend of Caesar, give us a big idea, and then walk through two effects, and we'll be done. Sounds quick, doesn't it? Yeah, we'll give that a crack. Come on. Um, This phrase, friend of Caesar, it's got some historical baggage, which is helpful just putting our minds across really briefly. And that historical baggage is that Pilate, he was the Roman governor in Jerusalem from 26 AD to 36 AD. Keep those dates in your mind. Jesus, a lot of scholars will think, died, was crucified in 33 AD, three years before Pilate's reign finished. 
And this is not the first time Pilate has had a mob of angry Jewish people at his doorstep claiming blood. The first time was when Pilate first started his reign in Jerusalem. And this, the first thing he did to tick off the Jews is he brought in what's called a Roman standard. It's like a flag with an eagle on it and Latin across the top, which basically just signals the reign of Rome and tries to give imagery to Caesar. And the reason this ticked off the Jews is because the Jews were told in their religion, their Torah, their law, that they should have no other gods before Yahweh, that they should make no graven images of a divine being. And so when Pilate comes into Jerusalem and ticks off the Jews, the reason they're ticked off is because he puts into the center of their temple, the center of their cult life, the center of their ritual and religion, an image of a god, the one thing that their law told them not to do. And so they come to his uh, province in Caesarea, and for five days they're protesting, saying, take down the images, take down the images, take down the images. And Pilate's like, ah, stuff this. So he commissions some soldiers. They go into the crowd and he says, on my word, pull out your swords and jab them. And as he gives the word to the soldiers, this is the first sort of few years in his reign, the soldiers pull out their swords and the Jews at the time, they bare their necks and say, yeah, we'll take it. We'll stand up for our religion. So Pilate removes the graven images and he tries not to tick off any more Jews for a while. A few years later, similar thing happened and a mob is at his doorstep again and as this mob is at his doorstep he commissions some soldiers again go into the crowd and when I give the signal beat them with clubs leave a few people standing and this actually happened some Jews lost their life that day and so when this mob comes to his temple in Jerusalem to his palace guard and they're rattling and they're protesting and they've got a case to bring before Pilate. It's not the first time he's experienced this. But there's a difference in this moment. He's got less confidence in this moment. Why? Pilate was mentored by a guy named Sejanus. And Sejanus was a guy whose policy was very anti-Jewish. In other words, he basically wanted to be cruel, clinical and barbaric to Jews. And Pilate imitated Sejanus until Sejanus dies in AD 31. And Emperor Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, he rejected Sejanus' policy. And so here's Pilate. Follow me here. Really briefly, we'll be done. Here's Pilate. His mentor's dead. The anti-Jewish posture of his mentor, which Pilate had so easily imitated, has been rejected by his emperor. And so what's Pilate going to do? He can't use force to tick off the Jews anymore. And they won't give up. He gets insecure. Why? Because if he, gives, if he doesn't give in to the Jewish leaders, they'll cause more of a riot, which will bring Pilate's job into jeopardy as Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, rains down his disapproval upon Pilate. If he gives in to the Jews, then he's saying that, really... The clamor of a crowd has won its way as opposed to the rule of Pilate. He's insecure. He's between a rock and a hard place. And that's why when they say in verse 12 of chapter 19, you're a friend of Caesar, here's what he's thinking. He's thinking, if you call me not a friend of Caesar, you're really saying I'm a friend of Sejanus, who Caesar has rejected. 
And so he fears for his job. He fears for his security. He fears for his control. He fears for his power. And what he does is out of the insecurity of that moment, he gives into the, the noise of the crowd. And then we have what Christians call the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's the big idea. That's the big part of the story. That Pilate folds on his convictions, folds on the truth, folds on everything that he'd learned dear, all because he was insecure about his pride of place in the Roman Empire. And so here's the takeaway point. We've got an insecure leader. And on one level, I just want to say up front, whenever you preach through the Bible and you've got a lens, and our lens today is encounters with Jesus, there's something, there's sort of like an internal sort of wrestle you have to do, which is this. I can't preach through everything in this passage right now. And if you were to say, hey, is that the main point of the text? I'd have to say, no, it's not. But actually, here you have a man. The central theme of this particular moment is insecurity. And the question I want to ask, and I think it's got a prophetic edge to it for us and our church, is, man, how does insecurity affect our lives? Because it affected Pilate really deeply in this moment. And we, when my, myself and the other location pastors were putting together this preaching series, and we came up with the title, The Insecure Leader, I remember thinking, oh, man, there's more to that passage than that, but there's not less. And I think God's got something special in this today for us, actually. And if I could invite you just to lean in and just to let this wash over us and perhaps interrupt us as we're thinking about ourselves and others and God. Because insecurity plagues our cultural moment. Insecurity permeates our very lives. A lot of us walked into this church this afternoon insecure. I know I sometimes walk into this church sometimes insecure, right? Insecurity is, is, is part of the flesh and blood, the bread and butter of our daily lives. And so I think God might want to speak to us something special this afternoon. So here's my question. How does insecurity affect dot, dot, dot? And there's two things I want to talk about. How does insecurity affect, one, our view of truth? And two, how does insecurity affect our experience of ourselves? Our view of truth and our experience of ourselves. And we'll go through the, the Bible to actually unpack these things. So how it affects our view of truth. Point number one, let me just read verses 33 to 38. It says this, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now this is a really reasonable question from Pilate because the Jews come to his gate, they're an angry crowd and they say, man, crucify this guy. And so Pilate, who's sort of got like a, a court of law book in his hand, he's just like, man, is this a reasonable request? Like I've got to do my jurisprudence, I've got to do my due diligence and figure out whether this is actually a reasonable thing to do. So we asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because that's the claim they were making, that's the reason they rallied so Pilate would kill him. Reasonable question. Jesus says, is that your own idea, he asked, or did others talk to you about me? And Pilate's like, man, am I a Jew? There's probably a bit of sass in Pilate at this point. Like, am I a Jew? I've got no idea, bro, but like, you're at my doorstep. I could help you. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. What is truth? There's a few ways Pilate can ask this question. One is like, you know, honest, genuine inquiry. Jesus, 
I'm curious. Could you tell me what truth is? That'd be really helpful, Jesus. The truth about you, the truth about this situation, and heck, maybe, maybe even the truth about life. Could you tell me what is truth? The other interpretation, which I go for, which I think most reasonable people go for, is like, he's like, no, what the heck? What is truth? That's not relevant right now. That's not helpful right now. Let's throw away truth. You are on death's door right now. Don't talk to me about truth or ethereal topics or philosophy or what corresponds to reality. That doesn't matter. You're on death's door. Like, let's get rid of that. What's truth? And why is that the better interpretation? Well, it's really simple. He doesn't wait for an answer. He doesn't wait for Jesus to be like, well, here's what I think, you know. He just lets Jesus go and goes to the Jewish people and continues the conversation. And here's the thing. Pilate's standing between political empire and religious fanaticism. And right in his face is the Son of God. But because of his insecurity and his clutching of power and his desire out of that insecurity to do what is most expedient, not what's right, he falls. And he sacrifices truth on the altar of convenience. He sacrifices truth on the altar of convenience. Pilate, you might say, was a pragmatist. Pragmatists do not what is right, but what is convenient. Not what is true, but what's expedient. That's what pragmatists do. That's what Pilate did. And here he is in the first century with the Son of God staring him blank in the face, the King of the Jews and the King of the world. And he misses him. Because of his insecurity because of his clutching for control, because of his fear of losing power, he misses Jesus and he misses the truth. Do you think that's true and possible of us? That we would have God right in our midst, that we would have God right before us, whether in the scriptures in our quiet time or in the face of a Christian as we gather at church, and we could miss him out of our insecurity, out of our fear of losing control, out of our clutching for power, whether in small ways or big ways. Do you think we could miss Jesus? Pilate did. What is truth? And then he pieced out, not wanting a full answer. Here's my point to us as I apply this to our lives. Humans find it easy to sacrifice truth on the altar of convenience. We do this all the time. We do this every single day. If you're, <laughs> I'm trying to think of examples on the fly, I won't, that's always unhelpful. But we're really good at sacrificing truth on the altar of convenience. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary published their word of the year, it was called post-truth, which didn't mean we moved into a cultural era in which truth wasn't valid, it just means that people don't care. They're like Pilate, we're like, ah, oh, man, truth doesn't matter. In fact, in the 20th century, a move happened in philosophy which saw to the fact that people really don't care about truth at all anymore, it's called postmodernism. And the idea, as one French guy called it, is that we don't like overarching narratives in which to couch our life. We think about truth claims and religions and philosophies more as like oppressive sort of suits that we have to wear rather than liberating platforms from which we can live our lives. We live in a post-truth world. If you ask the average Aussie on the street, man, what do you think about ultimate life, ultimate meaning and destiny and morality? They'd be like, I don't care, man. Like, I just want to get knocked off at 5 p.m., 
go home so I can have a decent work-life balance. Like, don't talk to me about truth. We live in a post-truth world. Truth is so demoted in our culture. It's seen sometimes as oppressive. And you'll hear it said in academic faculties or all around our city, man, truth claims they're oppressive, they're unhelpful, they make me feel weird. And... But here you've got Pilate with this throwaway question. What is truth? We live in a, a culture that might be allergic to truth. In the very same breath, though, I'd have to say we live in a culture that's got an affinity with truth. How do I know this? Like, we live in a culture that in some ways hungers after truth. Um, I remember it was like 2017 or 2018, and uh, there was a podcast that came out. It was called The Teacher's Pet. Anyone listen to the podcast, The Teacher's Pet? Yep, five of us, awesome, really encouraging. But The Teacher's Pet, it was this like true crime documentary uh, put on by the ABC, and they sort of journeyed through the life of uh, this family in like uh, northern Sydney, I think, and it was like this murder that took place. And the ABC got onto it because it was a closed, cold case, but then it got dredged up decades later. And the question that propelled this podcast and its viewers' like interest in it was this. Who killed? I think it was Lynn Dawson. Ooh. Isn't that, isn't that ominous? Wow. <laughs> okay, don't kill me, speaker. So, but like, who killed? I think it was Lynn Dawson. Can I get some nods from the podcast listeners? In? Yes, Lynn Dawson. And this is like, everyone was like, man, who killed Lynn Dawson? And this thing took the Western world by storm. It was like top of the charts in Canada, top of the charts in Australia. Everyone loved it. Why? What's the truth of the story? Or think about it in like romantic comedies. There's always like a, a guy that, you know, or a girl that people cheat on each other in romantic comedies. That's a, it's a thing, right? And then the couple will be chatting to one another. And they'll just ask one another, hey, I, I just have to know. Did it really happen? I just have to know. And in these kinds of arenas, truth is not seen as something that's going to oppress me, something that's going to restrict me, something that's going to change and constrain my freedom. Truth is seen as liberating, as the antidote to my questions, as the answer to my ultimate needs. And this is the picture of truth that we get in the Bible. Jesus said in John 8, 32, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. This is the picture of truth we get in the story of Jesus and the picture of the Bible more broadly. That truth is not something that oppresses or constrains or constricts. It's something that sets us free to know about ourselves, to know about one another, to know about God and say, yes, I know it truly and I know it experientially. This is the truth and it set me free. You chat to Christians who have a living relationship with Jesus and they'll talk about truth in a way that brings tears to their eyes. You chat to someone who's just been hurt by Christians and they'll think of truth that's always going to be painful. But truth was always meant to be and can still be, friends, something that sets us free. One of my favorite actors is Jim Carrey. And in his prime time, he acted in a show called The Truman Show. I've got three minutes left on the clock. Wow, how'd that happen? I'll skip that illustration. If I hear the worship band say go on, then it's like I'm in the clear, hey? The Truman Show, real quick. It was this beautiful story. And this Truman, he lives in this made-up world. And he's on air all the time, but he doesn't know that he's being filmed. He doesn't know that his whole world is constructed. 
But after many years, after many decades of living, he finally decides, man, I wonder if the world I live in is really true. And he gets all these signs that it's not, that actually he's living in a made-believe, made-up, fabricated world. Uh, Like uh, sort of lights start falling from the ceiling. Uh, He realizes that everyone's got the same schedule every single day, so he can always trust that his neighbor's going to walk down the street, that his colleague's going to say hi at this time and that kind of thing. And so he gets curious, and so he jumps into a boat, and he starts sailing out across the water, looking for the edge of what he comes to believe is this fabricated world that he'd been born into and he gets to the edge and as he gets to the edge there's a door and he walks up these stairs which you can't see they're there trust me and he gets to the top and then over the loudspeaker comes the creator of the tv show Uh, I think his name is Christoph or something and he has this conversation with Truman and he says this to Truman just as Truman's about to leave Um, Truman asks was nothing real and Christoph says you were real that's what made you so good to watch Listen to me, Truman, there's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. Same lies, the same deceit, but in my world you have nothing to fear. It's this invitation to stay in the made-believe world that Truman was born into. So what's he do next? Does he sacrifice truth for comfort, living in the fabricated world that he'd come to surround himself with? Or does he step through the door into the unknown because he knows it's true? Let me ask you, if you could sacrifice truth for comfort and live with a lie, what would you do? I've never met a Christian, never met a Christian who said, yeah, I took that step of faith into the story of Jesus and believed with my heart and said with my mouth that he's Lord. Though uncomfortable, man, it's meaningful. I've never met a Christian who's regretted their decision to follow Jesus, not when it's real, not when it's living, not when it's active. We would never sacrifice truth for a lie. Not when we realize that meaning's on the table, comfort's on the table. So how does it affect our view of truth? Well, it should really show us that insecurity would leave us to sacrifice truth on the altar of convenience. But if you come to meet Jesus, man, you'll jump on the adventure he's got available to you. So this is ultimately an invitation that you can meet Jesus. You can step into the liberating truth that's afforded to you in the Gospels and revealed to you in the face of Jesus. Number two, and I'll finish with this, how insecurity affects our experience of self. There's this sort of play that happens uh, in, this, um, in this story, in this passage, where Pilate, as he becomes more and more convinced of Jesus, at the same time, after every conversation he has with the Jews, he becomes less and less convinced that he needs to do the right thing by Jesus. And you just walk through the passage, you'll see it really clearly. It says, like, Pilate resorted not to crucify him. Pilate resorted not to kill Jesus. Pilate set up in his mind that he'd get Jesus free. But after every conversation with the Jewish elite, Pilate's like, oh, I don't know what to do with this Jesus guy. And it culminates with them saying, you're a friend of Caesar. And he freaks out and he gets insecure and, you know. But then there's these moments while he's both unsure of, he's sure of Jesus, then unsure of Jesus. He steps into that really strongly and he sort of flaunts his power. So he says to Jesus at the end of chapter 18, he's like, hey, just by the way, you know I'm the one that can free you. Like I'm the one with power in this moment. And so he oscillates. And this is the point. He oscillates between security and insecurity, between power and powerlessness between pride and really fear, and he oscillates. And that's a definition of insecurity that I think is really helpful because insecurity is always accompanied by pride. Insecurity is always attended by 
an overcompensating kind of power. Carrie Newhoff, the pastor and leader, writes this of insecurity. He says, insecurity is that awkward lack of confidence that makes you too aggressive in some settings and too passive and resigned in others. It makes you hide from who you really are from others, and honestly, it makes you hide from yourself. And here's the point I want to make that Pilate demonstrates and models so helpfully. Insecurity affects the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to others, and ultimately the way that we relate to God. It affects everything. It so permeates our imagination that no relationship's off limits to the influence of insecurity. You'd feel that if you've lived any ounce of time in a normal community that wants to be your friend. So let me just apply this to a few settings and I'll skip some for the sake of time. Think about this in social settings. I've got a friend, he's a colleague, um, old colleague from the UK, and um, he talks about that experience of walking into a party or a room, or let's, let me dare say a church, and you walk in and everyone's got this one thought. And, you know, maybe some of you are better than me, that's fine, but everyone's got this one thought. I wonder what people will think of me. He's got this wonderful line, which is like, oh man, that's just like the last thing you need to worry about, in a sense. Because if everyone's worrying what everyone's thinking about them, then really no one's worrying about thinking about others, so all of us are free from the gaze of one another. Wonderful, really helpful, right? But just imagine, just like, imagine if that was every single time you walked into this church on a Sunday. Man, you'd struggle to have relationships. Man, life would be hard. Relationships would be difficult. Social settings would feel so taxing and in the way. Insecurity affects us in social ways, in very profound ways. It makes us so consider ourselves and worry and be anxious. And oh my gosh, it really affects us. That's in social settings. What about in um, what about in in mission? Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is a great one. Um, If I say so myself. Insecure people make terrible evangelists. Terrible evangelists. You sit here on a Sunday and the security of people that know you agree, like agree with you about Jesus, life, ultimate reality, and then your task is like to tell others about him. If you're insecure and the primary thing you care about in life is, man, I just want people to like me. I want to be approved by others. I want to feel good within myself. But you've got this truth claim about reality that changes everything for its listeners. You won't share that. Too much at stake. Too much to risk. Gosh, I'm not going to tell my boss about Jesus. Like, I'll just wait till I get to this secure place in my job, and then maybe when I've got this place of position and authority and power, that's when I'll tell them about Jesus. And I'll sort of, like, do this, like, um, this 180 flip, and, you know, they'll be really surprised, and I'll be surprised, too, that I'm a Christian, because I hadn't told anyone yet, you know? Like, if, if you're insecure, you make a terrible missionary. Or think about your family context. Man, I, my family are all Christians, and I think, oh, gosh, How do I tell them about Jesus? And if I care about the comfort of my security, if I care more about not coming across as weird or strange, man, I'll make a terrible evangelist to my family. All the while they miss out on Jesus. All the while they miss out on the beauty of the liberating truth that is God. You'll make a terrible evangelist if you're insecure, a terrible missionary. The last thing I'll say is, man, even in your own isolation, you'll always be comparing You'll always be thinking about others and how they might be doing better than you. And I think this plays out in pride and in insecurity. Um, The last thing would just be relationships, and this is a relationship with God. Am I good enough yet? Am I spiritual enough yet? 
This is actually a problem in the early church, it's the Corinthians. Some of them were so proud of the spiritual ecstasy they were experiencing in the gathering. And Paul's just like, hey, don't be so proud and boastful. Others of them were insecure because they weren't experiencing the same thing. And man, if you're plagued by insecurity, you will always be uncertain, ungrateful, unable to give thanks to God for what he's actually doing in our midst on an individual level, on a corporate level. You'll just compare. And some of us will get proud at the awesome experiences of God that we've been blessed with. And others of us will just get insecure thinking, man, maybe I'm not spiritual enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. And all of a sudden, the work that God wants to do in our midst, maybe which looks like his spirit breaking out in ways that we can't contain, we'll actually miss them because we're so busy looking at one another, insecure about what God's doing in each one of us as we gather. If you're insecure, man, you're going to find church hard on a Sunday. People ask me all the time, man, Alex, why do you raise your hands in worship? Like, is that something, are you performing? Are you leading? Are you modeling? I'm just like, Actually, no, this is just the thing that God's liberated me to do so I can embody the kind of surrender that I sing with my lips. You know, this beautiful just release, God, I just worship you right now. But if you're insecure, you won't do that. You'll be worrying about whether the person next to you is doing that or isn't doing that. What's the thing that God is inviting you as an individual, personally and intimately, to encounter him with? What's the insecurity he wants to dissolve in you so you'd be free to worship and follow him? When I was living in the UK, one of my colleagues was mentored by an Irish minister, and the Irish minister was brothers with John Lennox. Gilbert Lennox was his name, and he always said to my colleague, Gareth, Gareth, you must be free to serve the Lord. Gareth, you must be free to serve the Lord. You must be free to serve the Lord. And here's what I want to say to us as a church this afternoon through the prophetic name of this title sermon. We must be free to serve the Lord. We need to be free to worship God, free from our insecurities, free from our comparison, free from the thing that would so hinder us from experiencing what's staring us dead in the face. Jesus, he's right here. He's always here. Every Sunday we gather, it's no mistake that we'd experience him. It's his very very intention. That's what he wants to do among us. And so here's the question I've got. Just as we close our time, what will free us from this insecurity. What did Pilate miss? I love what C.S. Lewis said about humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That in other words, the antidote, the pathway, the course towards freedom is not more self-consciousness. It's more God-consciousness. It's not more looking in to try and say, oh man, I'm so good, or man, I'm so bad. It's actually just not even thinking about that. It's being others-focused. It's being God-focused. That actually the primary agent in our insecurity is ourselves. And the way toward freedom is just being transfixed with a different object. Setting our gaze towards something other than me giving God our attention, God our affection, God our imagination. And when you do that, you stop worrying whether you're good enough, whether you're bad enough, whether you're spiritual enough or not spiritual enough. You stop worrying whether you're playing the right part, whether you've overstepped yourself socially. 
You stop worrying about all your little idiosyncrasies that make you think, man, I don't fit into this community. You stop worrying about whether people will look at you in worship. You start worrying about whether actually God might want to gift you with the gift of, I don't know, some spiritual gift insert here, you know. You just start looking for it from Him. You just start moving towards Him. You just feel free. And so how do we become God conscious? It's right here. Look at Jesus. Jesus was right before Pilate, but Pilate didn't see Him. What about us? Did we encounter Him? Because if we did, man, it would dissolve our insecurity, but oh, so much more. It'd free us to be the selves God always intended us to be. It'd free you to be you in the way that God intends you to be. It'd free us to be the people of God, not fearing our insecurity, not holding on to comfort, not grasping for power, but as Jesus says in this passage, following the voice of truth to where staring him dead in the face and letting that truth set us free. This is the invitation. And so as we finish our time, I just want to ask us, could you imagine a community in Brisbane City of people that are so unselfconscious? Imagine the joy we as individuals would feel. Imagine the mission and the impact we'd be able to have. Imagine the relationships we'd be able to cultivate. Imagine the small groups we'd be able to have. The dinners, the meals finished but everyone stays, you know? Beautiful. And so as we think about the insecure leader, here's what I wanna ask us to be an unselfconscious community. Can we be that in New Life Brisbane? Let me ask it in a less rhetorical way, perhaps with some response. Can we be that in New Life Brisbane? Can we be an unselfconscious community? Can we be a community so transfixed on Jesus that we're not looking to our right and our left, we're just running the race set before us. And as we find ourselves 50 meters, 80 meters, 100 meters down the track, we look to our side and say, oh, you too? Yeah, God set me free from that ages ago, so now we're just running. We're running the race set before us. Can we be that kind of people? And as we do that, the joy, the life, the community, the impact on this wonderful city to which God has called us, man, it would just be unparamounted, unprecedented, beautiful, the kingdom of God breaking out in our midst. Can we be that kind of people? Can I invite us to stand? I want to offer two responses just briefly. And the first is for those who you've never encountered Jesus before. You're here, you've heard about Jesus, and you think of him more as like this distant historical figure, but tonight you're perhaps asking the question, could he be real and could he be real for me? And I want to make the invitation to you that you can actually talk to him tonight. It's not a magical bullet, silver bullet but it is the beginning of a conversation which should echo into relationship with him, relationship with this church, and man, we'd call discipleship. And so if you find yourself stirred, just as you hear me speaking, I wanna invite you to respond. And we respond simply by praying, God, thank you for what you've done in Jesus. Sorry that I've not lived my life with reference to you. Please come into my life and help me follow Jesus. And so can I invite the whole church just to close their eyes? Bow our heads. And if you find your heart stirred this evening, just as I've been speaking, 
sure about insecurity, but mostly about Jesus, and you wanna pray that kind of prayer along with me and the rest of the church, can I just ask you to raise your hand? You've never been in a relationship with God, and you're like, man, I, I wanna follow this Jesus guy. Thank you so much for raising that hand. I will pray with you, and it'd be awesome to have the rest of the church pray with us. I'm just gonna wait a moment. If there's anyone else in the room that would love to start that conversation with God through Jesus, just raise your hand. We're going to pray that prayer as a community and if you call New Life home and this is your church, can I just invite you to pray out loud alongside me and that individual who put up their hand. And so let's pray together. Feel free to repeat after me. God, thank you for showing yourself in and through Jesus. Thank you for what you've done on my behalf to set me free from sin, to set me free from insecurity, and set me free to follow after you. Sorry that I've not lived my life with reference to you. Please come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Change me with your love and lead me after Jesus. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Can we just give that person a round of applause? I just want to make another call. If that was you, by the way, please come say hi to me after the service, and I'd love to just take this conversation forward, perhaps even shout your dinner. That's awesome another person in the room that I want to pray for, and it's simply this person, the insecure person. And I actually just want to invite us to close our eyes again and just have a moment between us and God. And I want to ask, is insecurity something you struggle with? And deeper than that, how's it plaguing you? How's it affecting you? And I want to pray for the Spirit of God to come. As we, as we sing and to fill you to fill you to free you to free you to love him to love him so you'd be the self that he always intended you to be free from insecurity free from shame free from comparison and so if that's you can I just invite you to raise your hand insecurity is something that affects your life plagues you wonderful I see a number of hands going up if you would like to put up your hand please just go for it just between you and the Lord, thank you. Most of the room's hands are up and I'm so encouraged. I just want to pray a really special prayer. And if that's you, I just invite you to hold your hands out in front of you in surrender to God. And as we pray, just let this prayer be your own. Father God, thank you so much that you offer us freedom. You offer us truth. Lord, I want to pray for everyone who raised their hand right now. And I want to ask God that you would come by your spirit and power. Free them to be the selves you've created them to be. Free them, Lord. Free us, free me, that we would be unselfconscious without a concern or comparison or worry about what others would think about us or whether we're X enough, Lord, whether, whatever it is, Father, would you free us? God, I want to ask, come, Holy Spirit. Fill us in Jesus' name.